Welcome to episode 245 of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg. On this week's show, we bring you an interview I did in Brisbane with Tom Hill, who is the coach now of Maria Sakari, the player who is making her WTA Top 20 debut on Monday after a steady improvement in her time working with Tom as her coach. You'll hear Tom's sort of journey, life story through tennis from his time as a hopeful young student player at the IMG Academy in Florida, all the way to going to college tennis and working his way onto the WTA Tour as a hitting partner, and then as a coach of Danielle Collins, and then working with Maria. So it's hopefully some interesting insight and some interesting experience and a bit of the roadmap of what uh, one path to the coaching ranks in tennis looks like right now. Here's Tom. All right, so Tom Hill, you are here in Brisbane as the coach of Maria Sakari. Start at the beginning with you and your tennis life, at least. You grew up in Birmingham, England. I've been there a couple times for WTA. What, what, what was your introduction to tennis? Well, honestly, I, start, I started playing football, uh, soccer. Uh, obsessed with it, love it. I, I still follow. I mean, I play fantasy football every day. It's, it's, I love it. Uh, but tennis, how I got into it, I was actually playing for a football team. And I was a striker forward, and, and my coach said to me, you know what, Tom, I think you'd be better playing as a defender. And I was kind of insulted. I was like, defender? What? And, uh, and, and, and so kind of me being my, I, I don't know, I was probably like eight years old at the time, being a rebel, I was like, okay, that's it, I quit. And he was like, why are you just going to quit? And I was like, you see those tennis courts over there? I'm going to go play tennis. <laughs> so I kind of started tennis by being a bit of a rebel. Yeah, sure. Um, but then as soon as I kind of got on the tennis court, I love like the fact that it was just me. I was an individual. Uh, it was me versus my opponent, and I, I became obsessed with it. Uh, no one could ever tell you to play the wrong position again. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and then my parents could could tell that I was totally hooked from the moment I started, and they sacrificed a lot for me. And they, they when I was ten, I went to IMG Academy. Yeah. Uh, so 10 to 14, I was a student there. So this is the stuff I want to actually ask you more about. So I've been sort of doing more on academy stuff or a couple of different projects that involve IMG and other academies. And I'm curious, like, what... Just tell me more about that decision. When you're 10 years old, to sort of uproot your entire family across an ocean yeah. to go to a small town in Florida for an academy and having sort of the, you be responsible for the entire family's direction, which is not something a lot of 10-year-olds really <laughs> are at sort of the main focus of the family in that way, no, especially from like a career kind of lens. Because I mean, what were the goals for going to IMG and what was the, was it your, were you the one who wanted to do? Was your parents? Who took convincing on, on this, on this move? I, uh, my parents obviously incredible and I think they could tell, because it was my brother as well, he was also playing. He was two years younger than me. It was more a thing of the school that I was at in the UK were telling me that I couldn't have time out to go play tennis. Um, I'd been to IMG with the tennis academy that I was training at in the UK, so I, I already knew what IMG was like. I knew how their program worked. I knew the coaches. My parents, they obviously, Florida, it's beautiful climate. Yeah. This, they love the beach. It was, it was great when I, w- I was there, and it's very different. It's funny because, obviously, as the story goes on, I go back to IMG a few years later. Yeah. But when I was at IMG, it's completely different to the IMG it is now. It was... 
I think it might have been even called the Nick Voluntary Tennis Academy at the time. And it was great for me. It was, you know, massive focus on the tennis. I was still doing the education, but it gave me the chance to, you know, I was telling my parents I want to be a professional tennis player. And I was fortunate that they were in a position where they could help support me. When you're when you're 10 years old, does this feel like pressure? Like, say, hey, family, you know, pack up and move to a different country because I want to play tennis. Or did it not register a, that way to you now, back then? Maybe as selfish as it sounds, I think maybe I was too young to properly realize what sure. was going on. For me, it was all just like, you know, like Disneyland. Oh, going to Florida, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, now, looking back at, you know, now I'm older and more mature, I, I can look back and go, wow, my parents sacrificed so much for me to do that. Yeah, it, it was an amazing experience. What is IMG, or what is Voluntarius Academy like as a kid? Like, what is it like going to a school, school, maybe in quotes for some people, but that, like, yeah. where tennis is the, the focus, or sports is even the yeah. focus? Like, that's, that's a lot of, you know, kids' dreams. A lot of kids would love to ditch homework in school and just go hit a ball around all day. Yeah, no, definitely. But what I think IMG did so great back then, I'm sure they still do it now, is you don't neglect the school. The school is still a massive part. There's still the homework. There's still everything. But just the, the way they schedule the day, I was able to play three, four hours of tennis, do an hour of fitness, yeah. and still get all my schoolwork done. And then I still had homework. I was doing just as much school, but it's just the way they scheduled it was just, was just great. And I, I think what I loved about it was they had all these different groups based on your level. And it was, uh, I used it as motivation that I want to get to the top group. And I was always challenging the people in the groups above me, like, I want to, let's play, let's play. If I beat you, I get to go in this group. And after about three years, I managed to get myself into the group that was, well, it's the top group that you could be without being like a, let's say, professional. So the yeah. next group above me was like all the guys, 17, 18, playing the top juniors, the futures. Um, and it was when I was 14 when a coach told me, look, maybe it's your best decision now to leave IMG. I'm, it was almost like, I shouldn't tell you this, but for your kind of progression in tennis, you need to go out now and travel, compete, and challenge yourself against the best players out there. So I moved back to Europe. Um, actually, I actually went to South America first. Uh -huh. My mom is from Argentina. Uh, so I based in Buenos Aires for a little bit. And for me, it was difficult being so far away from home, logistically as well. It's not an easy place to travel right. from. So I moved to back to the UK. I spent some time in Spain. During this period, I was playing all the ITF juniors. And... It was at the point I was like 17. I was playing futures as well. I had a few ATP points, and that's when the U.S. colleges started recruiting me. And my mum was like, "You know what, Tom? Obviously, you're in a good position in your tennis." I hadn't set the world on fire. I was the same year group as like Kyrgios, Kyle Edmund, Zverev, all these guys. Yeah. If they were going semis, final, winning, I was kind of second, third round, maybe a quarter final. So I was just a little bit below them. And mum was like, "You know, go to university." If you set the world on fire in university, you can always drop out. Yeah. Uh, but get yourself an education, a degree, something that you can fall back on. And then once once you've got that, go and play again or do whatever you want. Yeah. I'm curious, when you were at IMG, who were like the like the rock star students uh, there? Who were like who were like yeah, the, who, I, who left you like starstruck there? Well obviously the, the the main players were like the big professionals. Well Sharapova was there. Uh, on the men's side was like Tommy like, Hass. Like what, this is like around 04 or 05? Or what, what, what yeah, were the, this what years was 03 to 05, 06, okay. around there. Yeah. Uh, Tommy Hass, Taylor Dent, uh, all of those guys were the studs. 
um, Nishikori was actually playing juniors. Yeah. Um, and some of the other, like Philip Krajinovic, uh, Gastao Elias, all those guys were, and I actually became friends with a lot of them. So it, it, it was, they kind of took me under their, their, their wing. I was the, the 14 year old and they were like 18. And it was amazing to kind of see how those guys, it was motivation. Yeah. It, it just made you like, oh, come on, if, if these guys can do it, I can do it too. Was there, when you went to the college route, especially I think back probably, you know, 15-ish years ago, yeah. and there's probably less than that, actually. You're only 24 now, right? 24, so, yeah. yeah. so so seven years ago. I don't know how much, like, stigma there was around college tennis in terms of especially coming from outside the U.S. Yeah. If it was seen as sort of, like, giving up on the pros. And I'm just cur- curious. I and mean, maybe at that point, seven years ago, I guess, like, John Isner was already kind of a tour player was making noise as sort of yeah. the best college guy to go four years anyway yeah. in a while. Um, what, was, what was the decision like for that? What did you expect? Do you feel like you were sacrificing going to college in that way or from a tennis perspective? When I was kind of 15, 16, starting to kind of rise in the rankings of the juniors, I did see as I see college as college. If you, you only go to college if you're a failed tennis professional. Yeah. Because there weren't enough players that had gone into college and come out and had amazing careers. Obviously now you've got Isner, Anderson, Cam Norrie, all these guys. But as I got to about 17, 18, I, I started to kind of realize that you know the college tennis level is it's high and it's only getting higher i it was then when i was like you know what let's let's give it let's give it a try yeah and honestly it was it was a great decision because for me looking back i now have a marketing degree to fall back on if i ever wanted to use it yeah um and i just it's tough to say but i believe if i had gone the pro route i would have maybe been at around three, four, five hundred, so I couldn't make a living in that and then I'd be kind of what do I do now? So I think I made the right decision. Yeah, I think so too. It worked out so so you've played four years of college tennis. Yeah. Um, and then you get back to IMG as a as a hitting partner essentially? Yeah. So when was it? It was it was so I technically I graduated in let's I think it was April of twenty seventeen. And I needed to do a few summer classes just to complete all my units and it was during my final summer class about two or three days before my final exam and I got a text from um, Max Eisenberg it's actually a little a little bit of a, how do you know how did you know him uh, at that point great question um, I was in a bar in Santa Monica okay. I'd, I'd finished um, in April was when I kind of played my last match and as far as I'm concerned I'd put my rackets away and I wasn't going to touch them again that was me tennis done and I was just trying to experience summer school as kind of like a normal student. So yeah. I was studying hard, but then going out all the time. And I was in a, in a bar, it was just closing, and an old teammate of mine uh, bumped me on the shoulder. Was like, and we just started chatting, what are you going to do, and what are your plans? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, well, there's this agent who keeps contacting me to hit, but you know, I, I don't want to be a hitting partner yet, I still want to try and play on tour. How about I put him, put him in touch with you? And I was like, great. Yeah. I didn't realize at the time it was Max Eisenberg and Sharapova's agent. So going forward a bit, about two weeks later, it was right before my final exam, Max texts me saying, hi, like, do you, what are you doing now? Are you still in shape? And I was kind of like, yeah, I'm in shape. But I was thinking like, Tom, you haven't hit a ball in three months. Like, yeah. um, he was like, would you like to come to IMG? Um, Maria needs someone to hit with her current hitting partner, who's, who now is her I was coach. Good to, oh, yeah. yeah. He was still working with her, but he had some, I don't know, some family thing that he had to sort. So she needed someone for a few days. 
so I did that, got along great. Max then asked me to stay at IMG, so then I hit with you know Madison Keys, Heather Watson, basically every female player that was there. I did that for about two, three months. So what what is it like just for you? Just pause there for a sec. Like being a former college player, encountering sort of these top level WTA pros. What did you? What were your expectations about what hitting them would be like, and what was it actually like once you started doing it? It was, honestly, I was incredibly nervous. Uh, I didn't really know what the level was going to be like, and I hadn't hit for a few months before I hit with Sharapova, so I was like, geez, Tom, just please put the ball on the court, like, yeah. don't embarrass yourself. And, you know, I, I, I was a little bit out of shape, uh, all the partying. Yeah. But when I was hitting, I was like, okay, they hit incredibly well, but... I could keep getting the ball back. Uh, and then obviously by doing it for two to three months, I was by the end I was in probably the better shape than I was when I was a player. Yeah. But it was such a great experience for me getting to see how Maria Sharapova trained. Uh, at the time it was also Sabine Lazicki, Madison Keys, all these, these these people I never I never anticipated I'd be in this position. Yeah. So it was ama- it was amazing. It was So so to ask to answer ask that question, how does Maria Sharapova train? One thing that I'll always remember about uh, Maria was her professionalism to practice. She would, I was kind of told beforehand, Maria's going to come, she'll say hello, but then she's going to focus on her practice. At the end, she'll talk to you and do your things. I was like, great, whatever you want, I'll do it. So we had a good practice, hour and a half, the first day, and... I was just amazed at how how focused she was. It was just feed the first ball in, maximum intensity, maximum focus. When she had her routine breaks, it was timed, and I was like, "Wow, this is this is so cool, so cool." Yeah. And credit to her, as soon as the practice finished, she she would talk to me for a good five to ten minutes, getting to know me as a person. I was like, "Wow, I can't believe how 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 nice she is." And that was one thing I was I was really just I don't know, I don't know the word impressed, inspired. Um, when she steps on the court, it's 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 maximum focus, maximum intensity. Yeah. I guess just having, I guess I'm guessing you watch some WTA at least on TV. Yeah, of course. Being seeing, sort of feeling the balls from from these top women's players for the first time. What struck you about WTA level? Which obviously you never played against women, probably and obviously never in college, probably not for a while in juniors. I, I played a few. Um, sets with some WTA players when I was At IMG, 14 yeah. in, in, in Europe actually okay. in Spain it's like Flavia Panetto oh, all cool. of them um, I'd hit with a few a few of these WTA players I'd hit with a lot of ATP guys as well so I knew deep down I I could do it but it was more of getting used to their style the, yeah. the women's game is obviously a lot flatter I actually believe they sometimes hit the ball harder yeah the men's ball will kind of be heavier, will jump. Uh, you'll feel like it's it's the bounce that gets you. Where sometimes with the women, it's it's the speed. It's they use your pace and give it more. Yeah. So I had to get used to kind of being a little bit lower, trying to hit a flatter ball as well. What What are you told your sort of role as a, as a practice partner? Because you're there, sort of sort of like being this kind of like Goldilocks zone of like keep making it good for them. You're not the whether you have a good time or not. So I'm really yeah. the focus of, of the session. So like. Not you know hitting them off the court, but also not you know giving them just cheesecake puff balls all the time. Like how do you sort of find the the sweet spot there? And your I've, heard, I've talked to other male practice partners too, and say there's a bit of you know like an ego check sometimes it's, in it. Actually, I don't know if you yeah. ever did it like at a tournament. I was talking to one hitting partner about I think it was Dieter Kindleman actually who used yeah. to work with uh, Sharapova also saying like practicing with her like at a tournament where she's like supposed to be able to beat you yeah. at times can be a bit 
ego bruising, is what he was saying. Yeah, I, to be fair, from the moment I started, I always had a mindset of, I'm helping them, I'm working for them. It was never about me. Yeah. I, was, I was always obsessed with trying to give them the best practice. So I'd always be asking, do you want me to hit it harder, softer, whatever you want, just tell me. Uh, if, if, if their coach at the time, like it was Sven with Sharapova, if, if he told me, do this, do that, or you know, let her win this tiebreak or whatever, I just, no questions, just did it. Yeah. It was never a, oh, I should do this or I should do that, because does, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so I, I was always put the player first. It was, it's not easy being a hitting partner. You, you have to be fit. They, sometimes they have you drills and you're expected not to miss, hit the perfect ball in the perfect spot and keep running side to side and give them a good practice. So it was, it was challenging, but I also I enjoyed it. It was, yeah. it was a thrill. So how did, how did the transition from hitting partner to coach then happen? Well, I'm dead, completely honest with you, I, I got thrown in the deep end immediately. Uh, so when I was hitting with all these IMG players, Danielle Collins uh, was there. At the time, she was maybe 250, just recently graduated herself from Virginia. She wasn't an IMG player or signed athlete, but because she's from St. Petersburg, they allowed her to use right. IMG Academy facilities. So I would kind of, whenever I wasn't hitting with an IMG signed player, would help Danielle out and her coach. And I, I really clicked well with Danielle. We had great chemistry. We'd have really fun practices. I tried to, I tried to give more input in those because her coach was... <laughs> uh, Sasha Bain flossing yeah, in the window. Trying to, di- trying to distract me. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, he really distracted me good. Yeah. So you're hitting with Collins and yeah. then she sort of says, hey, yeah, so, I like this, I like you, let's... So she, 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 she had her, her coach that she had in college and he there was some reason, I can't actually remember, maybe a visa or something, he couldn't help Danielle going to two tournaments and this was at the time where my student visa was about to end. I couldn't stay in Florida anymore, I had to leave the country. So it was, tanning was amazing. Danielle said, can you come help me for these two tournaments? Which were out of the country somewhere? They were in Japan. Okay. They were w, her first two WTA events. Uh, the two in Tokyo. A few years ago, they had like back to back. Yeah, little Tokyo and big Tokyo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I went to those with her. And Danielle basically told me, look, I have my coach. But if you see anything, tell me. Whatever drills you want to do, do it. I, w- I just want you to kind of run it. And I was like, okay, I'll give it my best shot. I did tell her before, I'm like, you know, this is my first trip. And she was great. I did those two tournaments had a lot of fun and Danielle played well but then obviously she still had her normal coach as soon as I did those two she went back to Florida reunited with her coach I went back to the UK and that was me kind of thinking I had my you had two, your fun yeah. I had my fun hitting with these pros and now it's time for real world use that marketing degree well yeah. I was actually applying for law school okay oh, there you yeah. go even more even yeah. less fun yeah. <laughs> so I was trying to figure out if I should get a job in advertising or marketing yeah. or go to law school I was actually doing like bartending and waitering just to try and make some money because at the time like I hitting IMG I didn't make a penny it was all for free they didn't pay you? I, all for free completely they slave free. labor at IMG? What is it, <laughs> why, would, why would sorry sorry got hung up on this but why would you not get paid for that? you're providing them a service yeah um, I was kind of I actually Max did offer me money a few times I turned it down um, okay. why? because I didn't want them to feel like I was doing it for money I was doing okay. it because I told them I wanted to try and get a hitting partner role with a player. Okay. 
now I'm, you felt you were on a trial basis, I guess yeah, you're saying. Okay. Max kind of told me, look, I'll, I'll pay you. I turned it down, but I saw it more as, you know, try to impress. Maybe I'll get a role out of it. Yeah. Now I'm in my position now. I realize there's not too many players that have a coach and a hitting partner. It's a luxury. Maybe only the top players have it. But so Dan, obviously, I went to the tournaments with Danielle. Yeah. Went back to the UK. She she then reached out to me and actually I actually agreed to a job. It was a, an advertising job in McCann because I thought, okay, I'll make some money at this job for a year, then I go to law school. I'd already been accepted into the law school, but I deferred it a year. And I was starting January 15th and Danielle messages me on like the 23rd of December. Uh, she says, can we FaceTime? And I was like, okay. Didn't, didn't really have any idea what she would want, maybe just to catch up. But I hadn't spoke to her for maybe six weeks. And she goes, Tom, like I've just finished with my coach. I'm leaving to New Zealand tomorrow. I'm starting the season, but I have nobody. Like, can you help me? What are you doing? And I was, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? I told her, actually, I didn't even tell her that I had accepted the job. Oh, okay. No, I, I, I just said, of course, I'll, I'll come help you out. But I said, do you want a hitting partner or do you want a coach? Because in my mind, I was thinking, if I'm going to be a hitting partner, as you know, in, maybe it's a little bit different for some of these more, like, let's say, superstar coaches, but there's not really too much security. There's not really too many contracts unless you're at the oh, top yeah. of the game. Anybody who follows WTA knows yeah. that about coaches and job security these okay. days. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I, in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, if I turn down this job, I'm sacrificing a lot. But then I was also thinking, I can always get another advertising job. I may not get another chance to travel with a player. And then Danielle said, you, you know what, Tom, like the tournaments we had in Japan, I loved it. The way you coached me, I, I would like you to be my coach. And I'm 22. I've never yeah. coached anyone. Yeah. And I credit everything to Danielle. She gave me, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't her taking a chance. Not many players will take a chance on a 22-year-old coach who's never coached anyone. Yeah. And so I agreed to do it. I didn't tell my job. Uh, because I was like, let's kind of see how how it goes with the first two tournaments. As soon as I did it with Danielle, I was like, okay, I love this. Let, let's do this. So I told the job I wasn't coming. And then I started the season with Danielle as her coach. So I kind of skipped the whole hitting partner into, straight into coach. Yeah. What is it like being a coach on tour at 22 years old? I mean, do you feel... Because I mean, there are some coaches who are probably triple your age yeah, no, on the older end. Are, but are. like, what what... what what is that like? What is the dynamic like being a coach who's younger than most of the players on tour? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, Danielle was actually older than me. Yeah, it was difficult. Uh, I had no idea how to do anything. Obviously, traveling as a junior myself, I understood the whole booking, practice, course, transport. That was that's easy stuff. But it was the more running practices for a top professional athlete. Even though Danielle at the time was maybe like one ninety in the world, she was still a top player. And I, I saw potential in her that a lot of people didn't see. But I believed in myself from the beginning. I was like, Tom, just stick to what you believe in. Make sure the chemistry is good. Make sure she's happy on the court and off the court. And just give her the best practice. Just try to see what you see in her game. And at the time, now I can see things a little bit differently as I've had the chance to learn from other coaches. But at the time, I was like, okay, Tom, what would you do if you're playing this player? That was how I did tactics. I was, I would watch, let's say, Naomi Osaka, because Maria plays her tomorrow. Yeah. I would watch her and I'd be like, okay, Tom, if you were playing her, what would you do? And that was how, that was how I came up with the strategies. 
And I would also kind of do that, Tom, if you were playing Danielle, what would you do? And then I'd be like, okay, I'd do this. Okay, I need to make this better so that Danielle's hole in yeah. that game is fixed. And so I did that and don't ask me how, but she went from 180 to 39 in like six months. Yeah. And everyone was kind of looking like, who's this 22 year old acting like he's a coach? And you know, Danielle was amazing. She would always call me her coach when she introduced me. This is Tom, my coach. And there were coaches who would frown at me like, coach, ha. like, yeah, right. Like, yeah, like you hadn't paid your dues. Yeah, yeah. Like who are you? Who do you think you are? And, and I just kind of accepted it. I mean, it's a tough industry, this. Like people, they, they will talk bad about you. Yeah. Is there a moment, I guess, you mentioned people just talking about you. Is there a moment where you felt like you proved yourself? Or did, did, do you ever feel that way? I, or, or? I never felt like I'd prove, prove myself. I, 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 with Danielle, I always felt like people were... It's interesting because probably Danielle probably proved herself in that run where she had her Indian Wells and Miami run where she flew up the rankings. Yeah, I mean... But it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't think it carried over to you also? I was always scared that this could end at any moment. And if it ends, who's going to take a chance on me? It's, it's a really diff- I always, I, I always felt like people were looking at me in weird ways. Like nobody would arrange practices with me. If I'd ask any player, can you practice? It was no. Because they would be like, who is this guy? Yeah. Who's this little kid asking for practices? And at the time, Danielle, before she had the big run, they were thinking, I'm not going to hit with her. You, you know how it is. So it was difficult. I honestly felt like it was me and Danielle against the world. And I loved it. I, I, was, I accepted it. And I was like, always telling Danielle, like, you can do this. Like, we, we can shock the world. We can prove to these people that I am a great coach and you are a fantastic player. And I think we just kind of had this contagious energy between each other and it it worked I mean in that run like I remember the big win I remember in that run was Danielle beat Venus Williams yeah it was like Qu- quarterfinals Miami, Miami yeah quarterfinal Miami that's like the sort of definition of like establishment player yeah I guess what was that like for how does that feeling of beating a player who's you know future Hall of Famer seven time slam champ like Venus you know what is your pride in that as a, as a coach how does, and how does that compare to your pride in your own playing days to, to be honest Beating Venus was incredible. That was the one match where my phone started blowing up from all my friends. Like, wow, you, how did you do that? Like, but all of the wins went from Danielle won Newport Beach. She beat Isla Tomjanovic in the semis. That was the first win where I was like, that's a great, great win. And then when was it? In Indian Wells beat Madison Keys. Yeah. That was also to me like a big, big win. And I think what really helped Danielle in that match was I was telling Danielle for the good two days before that match you're going to beat Madison I promise you and she kind of was a little bit like no like she's so good and I was like I've hit with her I know her ball I've hit with you I know your ball you can do this and I was just trying to get this confidence this mindset that she could yeah and it's funny when she beat Madison Keys the first thing Danielle said to me was like wow you were right yeah and then obviously we took this kind of momentum into Miami and it wasn't just the Venus I think Gosh, who else did we play? We did we play Coco Vandeweghe? That was another great win. Mm-hmm. I feel like we played Monica Puig, but maybe I'm confusing years. Could be. I don't remember, but there was like three or four really good wins during that tournament, and I never at any moment started to believe, Tom, you've proved yourself as a coach. That I was just loving the ride with Danielle. I didn't want it to stop, yeah. and I was. I'm a superstitious person. I was not changing anything. The way we, the way we did everything, I did it the same. Things got a little different for us, maybe in 
around the, the clay court season, it was a difficult. It was difficult for Danielle because it happened so quickly. She went from playing all these ITF tournaments where she was used to winning a lot in college. I mean, she won almost every match she yeah. played. She's she's used to winning, and then when you get to these top tournaments, I remember we played Madrid, and she qualifies and loses first round, and then she plays Rome and she qualifies, beats like great players like Alison Risk and Camilla Giorgi, beats Serana Costea first round in Rome, and then loses to Casakina. Great, great wins. Yeah. But she sees it as, I'm losing first round, second round. It's just, the rise was so quick that sometimes you kind of, you lose the perspective of, yeah, you're losing second rounds, but you've beaten three top 50 players and you've right. got more points from a second round. And you were outside top 200 four months ago or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're 39, career high ranking. Everything is amazing. So that was the kind of the beginning during the clay. Yeah. She was starting to. No, she drew Wozniacki first round in Paris. Yeah, tough yeah, draw. But she that. actually should have won that match. Mm. Yeah, um, I remember those close matches. Yeah, and Danielle's game actually matches up well to, to Wozniacki. But then we had the grass court season. She had uh, one of her old coaches come out. And I always felt from the very beginning that because I was so young, inexperienced, players, it was always thinking, you know, if things don't go well, it's going to be my age. And she brought out her coach, and he's, he's a great guy, uh, Scott. And we finished Wimbledon, and, you know, she lost, I think it was third round in Eastbourne to Kerber, but Kerber on grass is such a tough match. Yeah, Kerber won Wimbledon that year, I'm pretty course, sure. Yeah. yeah. And then we lost to Merton's first round at Wimbledon. These are tough draws. So we stopped, and that was when I was, like, proper panic mode, like, what is going to happen 24 hours later? Um, I get a message from Lawrence Frankopan, Maria's agent, saying, do you want to be a hitting partner? Maria Sakari's agent. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to be... I actually wasn't a hitting partner. They they they, they called it um, assistant coach. And I was happy to do that because at this point, I didn't know if I was going to get anything else. I actually had a, a lot of offers. And so you had split with Danielle by that point? Yeah. As yeah. soon as the last match at Wimbledon, okay. uh, split with Danielle. How soon after that match? Um... I mean, forty-eight hours. Okay. She but you, but you felt like you saw it coming. You're saying I, I could, I could tell it was coming. Yeah. yeah. I think ever when she brought out her coach, I could, I could tell it was coming. But I, under, I understood. Yeah. Uh, I was young. Um. Yes. Yeah, so you get Sakari as an assistant role. Yeah. So it's assistant role, and to be honest, I, I was, I mean, I had a few offers from players like around 100, 150 to be a coach. But then I had Maria at the time, she was like 48 in the world to be assistant coach. And I was just like, yeah, I feel like this could be... Had you, had you met her? Did you know Maria Sakari at all? Yeah, actually, I actually met her mum uh, in Miami. Um, Angeliki was trying to get tickets because they had a lot of people coming. And Danielle, it was always just me and Danielle. That was the only people ever. And so Danielle had many tickets. And I just said to Angeliki, here, take two tickets. So she kind of met me that way. And then in Rome that same year, I was just at night walking the street and I, I saw Angeliki and Maria and Angeliki was like, ah, oh, Maria, Maria, this, this was the guy who gave us the tickets and they, they bought me an ice cream <laughs> oh, that's in, nice. in Rome. That's nice. But that was the first time I ever ever talked to Maria and obviously seen her play a lot. But, but yeah, and then start, it, honestly, being the assistant coach to Thomas Johansson was the, the most amazing experience I could ever have. He's such an incredible guy, such an incredible coach. I learned more from him in the, the three, four months than I think I, I, I would have learned ever just being by myself. 
on, I still talk to him every day, mm. even now. He, he, I, I call him my mentor. Yeah. I can't say enough good things about, about Thomas Johansson. What made him such a good coach or what made him such a good mentor? Just the, the way he saw the game, the way he had respect. Like, I didn't deserve any respect. I, I was this 22, 23 year old guy. I, I was brought in as a, I was brought in as a hitting partner, let's be honest. Yeah. They just worded it as, you know, assistant, assistant coach. coach just to kind of flatter Although me. Oh, he, he might have been traveling full time, I guess, was he? He was doing 25 weeks. Oh, so they, amount, so they yeah. told me, you'll do the weeks that he won't do. But it, w- it was always through him. Like, I was never giving strategies myself. It was, I talked to Thomas, he gives, and then I, I give the message to Maria. Yeah. But Thomas, like, he let me kind of do a lot of things myself. It, it wasn't like it's my way only, but he, he would always talk to me. He was always in charge and I respected him always like that. But just the way he kind of would involve me in conversations would, I never felt like it was him versus me. I felt like we were a proper team. And even now, if I, if I say, you know, send him a text, Tom, Tompa, what do you think about this? He'll, he'll tell me. He's, he's that good of a guy. Yeah. He, he really is. So what has it been like working with uh, Maria now? How is it, how different is it, you know, is it, how different are, do you have to be as a coach? And I guess when also did you take on more of a head coach role? Yeah, so I, I did a, a 10-day trial in Athens, pretty much. I flew to Florida. I stopped with Danielle in Florida, then flew back uh, to Athens. I did a 10-day trial, just hitting with her. After the first five days, it was just me and Maria. Then Tompa flew out to kind of meet me, make sure the team would all work together. And I then flew with Maria to San Jose. Uh, Tompa was coming Montreal yeah. and San Jose was a good tournament for her. Yeah. Yeah, it was the final there, right? Amazing, yeah. amazing. I think it I may be wrong, but I think it might have been her first final. I think it was. Final. I, I think can't, it was. I can't remember. Um, I actually played Danielle in that tournament. That's right. <laughs> what is that like, being in, being especially that fresh off of one player or another? I, mean, I don't know if it's more nervous, nerve-wracking before or during or what, but there's so I, much I, of that on tour. There's so many people, so many yeah, people have worked with multiple people in here, and there's so many different, like, so much connective tissue if you look at, you know, even just the coaching staff, many people who, you know, across, I don't know, there's lots of different... I honestly think dynamics. if they hadn't have played, I would have a better relationship now with Dan. Like, I don't talk to Dan. We don't talk mm. anymore. And I wished we did, but I think because they met... And obviously, because Maria won, I, I feel like there's this kind of, I don't know what it is, but we just kind of do our Weirdness, own things. Yeah, say, yeah. It's, it's weird. And maybe I should go and, and kind of try to break the ice, but it's it's just weird. Um, yeah, she made the final. That was when, after that tournament, she sat me down and was like, I'd like you to be full, full part of my team now. We then went to Cincinnati. She beat Osaka there. Yeah. US Open uh, it was just that was when I, I was properly in the team and then Tom Tompa and Maria ended at the end of that season and that was when they Maria brought in Mark Pecci as her head coach I was still the assistant I was totally I was more than happy to be the assistant coach if anything it was a little bit less pressure <laughs> Mark Pecci is also an incredible guy really really great guy hard worker so much knowledge about the game and also from the technical side he's he's incredible at that and I actually still have a really good relationship with Mark now the difficulty with Mark and Maria is Mark had his daughters that were trying to get into university in America mm. he obviously does his commentating which he's incredible at yeah 
and then he was also with Maria and I think it was just a little bit too many things to juggle so after a couple months it just kind of it just they just stopped it, it, there was no kind of bad blood or anything it was just couldn't make it work uh, we tried one week at Indian Wells with Andre Pavel and it was just a trial and then in Miami of last year Maria was still on the lookout trying to find a coach but she didn't want to rush the decision so she was taking a bit of time in that period I kind of I wasn't the head coach but I was the only person in her team so, stepped up a bit. Yeah, yeah. so I kind of took a role a little bit more like I was with Danielle and Maria just the clay court season last year was incredible winning her first tournament making semis of Rome coming through qualies her confidence just kind of went through the roof Maria around Wimbledon just before the grass told me that you know now I'm her coach like it's just me and I feel like we had a really solid season I mean she finished 22 23 in the world career high ranking six top 10 wins it was a really great year obviously now I'm still with Maria we agreed a new deal for this year and I, I really believe I can help her get top 10 yeah. even higher what is um, what is it like having your job I guess compared to you know advertising firm and other careers you might have considered having your job that sort of all depends on one person keeping you their interest and I'm a freelance writer too so I understand sort of being having not much job security all the time but um, I'm just curious what is it like especially you know in the dynamic too where you're supposed to be telling them what to do on some level but they are the one making the hiring and firing decisions it's, it's a unique dynamic the, yeah. the coach on tour in terms of who's the boss and who has the power at any sort of given time it's yeah it's, it's a really difficult one and, and Tom Fowler would always joke about this that obviously the player is I don't know the I don't even know the word, but the player's in charge. The player's the one that pays, your, pays for you, you pays your salary. But then the coach is the one that kind of runs the show. Yeah. So it's, it's a very difficult dynamic, but I think one of the most important things for a player-coach relationship is to have mutual respect and trust. Whenever Maria feels like there's something she wants to do in her game or she needs help with or change, she brings it up. I tell her that don't ever feel like it's my way or the highway. Like, talk to me, tell me. I'm always going to do things that I believe are best for you, but you're the one feeling it. Yeah. And I think if you have that kind of mutual trust and respect, it helps and you're only going to have great things. And The chemistry is so important with a player and coach. And if you get, um, Maria and I get along great. Yeah. I'm with her. I think I traveled 42 weeks with her last year. And oh, wow. that's like, I see her almost every day. What's it like spending that much time with somebody just from like a relationship management person? I mean, I, mean, I see, you know, I have traveled half as much as that probably roughly um, but even then you know there's still people you see like more than your own family certainly who are on tour and yeah, you I mean, can get sort of sick of them in the wrong moments or whatever just how do you how do you manage that sort of just not being too on top of each other and, and not giving each other space but also not be, you know it's, it's funny you yeah. say that because I mean maybe Danielle and Maria feel differently to how I did but especially like like Danielle and Maria I never ever felt like get out of my face I'm sick of you and for example Maria she's great like I don't ever feel like oh I'm seeing you now for the right. 50 second day in a row like <laughs> I don't want to see you no we get along I have breakfast lunch dinner with her almost every day I, I, I never get the feeling like oh I don't want to see you today right. like, we just have great great chemistry together I see her obviously I'm her coach but I also see her as a friend 
and I try to help her not just on the tennis court but if she has anything off the court yeah. I, I, I always look to, to try and give the best advice that I yeah. can give Marina's one of the players who's I think super popular with the other players on tour she's got yeah. a lot of sort of like regular practice partners and stuff like that that she has and what has it been like sort of seeing becoming part of this sort of WTA community as, as, as you're now a little bit more established in it and seeing it through her yeah. through her lens too because like, obviously everyone's a competitor and only one player will leave Brisbane here with a trophy. Yeah. But what is what is it like just sort of building up friendships with people who yeah. theoretically could be enemies all the time? It's a tough one because obviously it's pro- probably tougher for the players and the coaches. Maria is obviously... I don't know anybody that doesn't like her. I've met many amazing people through Maria. And yeah, I... I there's always people texting me whenever I get to a tournament, can we practice with Maria, can we practice with Maria? There's, I actually have to say no to a few people because there's so many people sure. asking to hit with her. It's nice to be popular. Yeah. <laughs> She's popular, yeah, maybe yeah, not me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure these people are not asking to hit with Maria just so they can have me on the Right, court. no, I know, yeah, I get that. Um, but, but yeah, she, she's, she's, she's loved. She, and I think it's because although she could play these players, she, she just is such a nice person that they just get along. I mean, obviously, her, her two besties would be Donna and Isla. Yeah. I remember in China last year, the draw came out and Donna and Maria were playing each other first round. They still practiced with each other the day before. They just didn't care. It's like, I think they actually put a bet on it that whoever lost or whoever won, I don't even remember, had to buy the other one a handbag or, or something. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but they just, they see it as they're great friends. When they go on the match court, they both try to win, but they're still friends after. It's, it's, it's quite cool. That Last way. sort of question I want to have, especially as you're working more on tour level as head coach, you have all-court coaching now. Yeah. Um, what is it? What is the dynamic like for you going out there to give advice, but also knowing that you are mic'd up and live on TV at the same time? That's, a, that's an awkward way to have a meaningful yeah. conversation no. sometimes, I would imagine. Or definitely, I feel like you have to do a fair amount of filtering or something or communicating in a, in a, in a specific kind of on-court coaching way. It's, it's difficult, and sometimes you actually forget that you have a microphone on. But I always try to be very careful with how I say things. But I'm sure you've seen, Maria and I have had uh, many interesting conversations <laughs> on some of these on court, but I always just try to think of it as I know that Maria or any player is stressed. The pressure's high, there's so many eyes. And they're watching. almost always calling you when they're losing, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think only once. I'm actually interested. I think only once she's called me on when she was winning, and that was in Morocco against Alison Van Utbank in the semi-final. She was up a set and 5-4, about to serve for the, the match, and she called me on because she was just incredibly nervous. And I just calmed her down. But normally, it's because she's down 4-1 or yeah. something like that. And I always try to think of it as the player. You can't get angry at them you can't tell them anything because like, they're not going to take in the information I try to always be calm calm them down and then give them one or two pieces of information that I feel could help them and sometimes I don't even give tactical advice at all because it, it, don't, it won't help them sometimes it's just psychological advice or, or something so basic but going back to your question yeah it's it's not easy when the whole world can listen to what you're saying yeah. a lot of them go on Twitter <laughs> I see it all um but it's it's fine. I remember Marie and I. We only had, I mean, we've we've had a few kind of heated discussions, but only one was like a bad one in Morocco, and yeah, it was on Twitter. But it's fine. 
what I guess um, last sort of thing. One of the questions I've gotten a few different times from people who are coaches at some sort of lower non-professional tennis level um, who want to know about how to break into coaching. I'm never entirely sure what to say to them because it's almost always like about who you know. It seems like and there. I don't know if you have any advice for somebody. If someone wants to wants to you know try some sort of more elite level coaching or more you know competitive level coaching like this yeah. professional tennis player coaching. Do you have any advice on yeah, how people how people I, can get a foot in this door at all? It's a difficult one because you do require luck. Obviously, the luck is trying to find a player, and then it's up to you to try and get the results to kind of demonstrate that you do you can coach at this elite level. If I think honestly, the best advice would be if you're a, a good player that is good enough to hit with these these WTA players, try to go to an academy like an IMG or Moritoglu or somewhere where they have a lot of good juniors or professional players like when I started with Danielle who were kind of 200 and try to get a role through the academy I honestly think that's that's the best and if if you're someone who maybe for any reason cannot hit I still think the academy is a great route because let's just say for example Patrick's academy there are so many top players that train there that he's got many young young kids and juniors that are kind of on the rise you just have to try and get yourself involved with one of those players and and hope that you can do a great job to to get the results but it's difficult it's so difficult because if if you don't have the results and it's like going back to your question from a little bit earlier it's only really kind of the end of last season where I fully was like I feel like I've done enough now that people will kind of respect me as a coach I don't, I don't get the feeling anymore that people are judging me. There are obviously going to be people, but for the most part, I feel like people will say he didn't just do it with Danielle. He's also got Maria to a career high. You know, once could be lucky, maybe twice isn't lucky. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who knows? But I, I think once whatever role you get, you just have to try and do your best and try to get the player to the best position they can be in. That it, there's definitely a bit of luck involved. Yeah. Last sort of thing, you you obviously went to Bradenton, Baltimore Academy. I'm sure with some dream of being on tour. Now yeah. you're on tour yeah. in a different sort of role than you imagine. I'm sure, but does it feel does this world and this whole ecosystem and sociology thing going on behind us and that that building there and after arena? Does it? What do you make of it as a, as a place to be and, and what's it like being being part of this world? It's, it's honestly it's it's incredible and I still can't believe I'm in this position. I mean, you've heard my story now, so. You, you kind of have an idea from, from how it happened that, for example, Australian Open was my second tournament with uh, Danielle. And I, I still remember seeing Rafa in the cap, in like the restaurant and I was like, oh my God, that's Rafa. It's, and I still I still kind of get that, that obviously not as much now because I, I see... You're a big Rafa fan, by the I'm way. I am obsessed I've with Rafa. I've seen that on your Twitter, yeah. I'm obsessed yeah. <laughs> with Rafa. I just, uh, he's, he's just, the, he's incredible. Obviously, I have respect for Roger, Novak, Andy, all these players, but for me, Rafa is... Rafa is my boy. You should see how much you're smiling now. You look so happy talking about Rafa. <laughs> but, but yeah, just see, seeing these players, obviously now I'm a little bit more more used used to it. But it, it's still incredible. Obviously, it's my first time in Brisbane and seeing the Pat Rafter Arena. And then when we check in uh, and get practice courts and you see all his like Wimbledon finalist trophy and all the other trophies that he had in his amazing career. And it's like, wow, this is, this is cool. Yeah. So it's definitely not something I take for granted but I, I, I feel lucky 
but I'm also proud of myself that I've worked hard and, and put myself in a position to try and help other people. There's nothing I would like more than for Maria to look back in 10, 15 years time, whenever, and say, I'm so glad I hired Tom because he really unleashed a, a part of my game that maybe someone else couldn't. I hope that I can help, help Maria do that, but for me, that's, that's better than anything. I don't need my name to be on any headlines or anything, but if, if I can have the players I work with be like, yeah, he really helped me, then that's, for me, that's amazing. It's been amazing to talk to you. Thank you very much, Tom, no, for coming thank on. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. So thank you very much, Tom. You can follow Tom. He is at, at Hill underscore Thomas on Twitter. You can also follow NCR on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Follow, uh, send us questions, comments, whatever kind of email content you want to send us. Memes. I don't care. No challenges remaining at gmail.com. It's the best way to contact, contact us there. And we also appreciate your support for everyone who has supported us so far on Patreon and everyone who will support us in the future, hopefully on Patreon. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. And I also want to give shout outs to the people who have backed us on Patreon since the last posting an episode. And they are Sherry Carita, Sean McNeil, Liz Kennel, Greer Millard, ARW, Joy Katz, and Mary Lange. And then there are our slam champ backers who get shout outs on every show. Chuang Nguyen, Betty and Jonathan Weinbaum. Thank you very much for listening to NCR, and we will see you next week. Bye, guys. Shake it up, shake it up, baby.